So guys, when it comes to scorpions, right, the bigger, the better. If a small one bites you, keep it to yourself. In five, four, Mutt Williams. <laughs> Hello, patrons. Michael here with the whole team. Trisha Aran, Brian Bittner, and Alex Kairos. How are you guys doing today? Uh. Hello. <laughs> doing well. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Welcome to our patron-exclusive episode on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the 2008 film directed by Steven Spielberg, written by David Kep. We are here at the end of our Indiana Jones journey, talking about this one, the fourth entry <laughs> into the series. Uh, okay, so we've talked a lot about the Indiana Jones films, and I feel like when talking about the Indiana Jones films, there's this like specter, this elephant in the room, this elephant with a crystal skull that I think it's time <laughs> for us to uh, talk about and embrace. And so I just want to start- And embrace. Embrace is a big word. By <laughs> recalling and retelling my experience and my relationship with this film. So okay. uh, much like I imagine all of us, 2008 came and there's a new Indiana Jones movie and I was like, nobody asked for this, but I will go see it. Uh, and I remember sitting in the theater and from the opening shot being like, dear God, uh-oh. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. With the gophers? <laughs> With yeah. the gophers. Sorry, prairie, prairie dogs. dogs. Or, yeah, prairie, yeah, whatever, whatever they, they are. are. <laughs> uh, and we got that fun little sequence of cars and, and military caravan. And then there's the, like, it just, the uh-oh kind of kept going and going. But then at some point I was like, you know, I think I'm enjoying this film. And then there was a whole lot of uh-oh. Mm -hmm. And I remember particularly <laughs> being like, you're not going to do aliens, right? Like, I know you kind of said Area Fit, yeah. but like, you're not going to do aliens in an Indiana Jones movie, right? Uh, and then they did the aliens. And I was like, I can't believe that that's a thing that I just watched happen. Um, but there was this little nugget of like, but it was kind of fun. Like, there's a little part of me that enjoyed <laughs> mm -hmm. that experience enough that I have seen this at least twice, and I want to say maybe even three times before uh, revisiting it this time. And so going into this this watching, after having watched all of them in a row, uh, first of all, I still don't like the opening shot, but I understand that it's part of this visual mm -hmm. uh, you know, motif that they've been doing, which I didn't remember when it came out. Right. So there was a reason kind of for, for that. Uh -huh. uh, the uh-ohs, I was anticipating a bit more, so I bumped less on them, right? You know it's aliens, so I can just be like, this is fine. This is a movie with aliens in it. And after watching all of the movies, aliens isn't actually that that far out from like some of the crazier things that happen in this, in this series. It's closer than I had uh, imagined it when I first saw the movie anyway. Um, and overall, I was like really enjoying this ride. There are definitely still uh-ohs and there is a very bad section of this movie that uh -huh. I think is essentially unredeemable. Um, <laughs> yeah. But overall, I enjoyed it this time enough to say, and not only do I enjoy it, I think it's actually like there are parts that are good and overall, I think it is a, a fine made 
and told a story. And I'm, I'm going to offer that surgical. I don't think, wow. Surgical, how you put together that sentence. Thank you. Uh, but I am going to offer, I don't think it's the worst Indiana Jones movie. Wow. So there are people who would agree with that. That's that's kind of where I am at this point of like, you know what? I kind of enjoyed it. It's kind of like occasionally when I could watch the prequels and be like, turn off my brain and just go on the ride. And this was a fun ride. Um, so that's me and the Crystal Skull. <laughs> what about you guys and the Crystal Skull? Uh, <laughs> Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um yeah, very similar experience. Um, I, I remember like reading an article back in two thousand, you know, five or six or whatever that Spielberg was like, "We're not doing any. Uh, we're doing very little CG on this. It's all going to be practical." And <laughs> all the stunts will be real, yeah. right? And um, four hundred and fifty CG shots later, like I remember sitting in the theater and like the prairie dog, which you know they exist. You like, could get them. <laughs> you can get a fucking prairie dog. You don't um, get anymore, right? Yeah. And, and then yeah, I get like okay, you're doing a fun twist on the mountain theme, the Paramount logo, da da da. But like fucking porgs, we don't need to then see them like reacting to the action later on, right? Like I'm like, brr. Um, yeah. So so yeah, I, I think that that hurt my initial experience, and then the entire, you know, what is the end of the second act um, uh, finale? Just like Amazon, that's like chase, right? That's just like all yeah. I remember. You know, again, yeah. I, I talked about the peak end rule, right? Like your your impression is made by the the highest highs, the lowest lows, and how you feel at the end. And for uh-huh. me, the lowest lows, like I don't even remember what the highest highs were for me. It was just the lows were so low. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, and but I do think like I was really looking forward to watching again because this is something we can get into. But I think something I've been thinking about during these movies is the difference between good and fun. And I think like the, the, the prequel, the star Wars prequels and this movie are, are still fun. Like they're just enjoyable to sit and watch where like watching the Hobbit extended is like, well, it's not, I'm not even having fun. Like, right. like you know, at that point, I'm, and then there are movies that are good that are, that are not fun. Cause they're not supposed to be obviously, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest or American history X or something, right? Like movies that are right. that by no point in their design. And then there's movies that are good and fun, like Raiders and last crusade and, you know, spider verse and whatever, like movies that are just, they, they do everything. But like, I agree with you, Michael. This is a fun movie. Like I enjoyed watching it and watching it again with my expectation brain turned off. I was like, you know, 15 minutes to 60 minutes in is like a pretty good Indiana Jones movie. Like when there's Mm -hmm. not all sorts of crazy bullshit happening, Uh um, then I'm just like, I like this. They're like going on an adventure and they're exploring things and they're doing, Mm -hmm. but okay, there's skeleton ninjas and like, okay, but like, I, (laughs) and then, and, and then there's like shit like the, um, the only thing I think in like that the chunk of the movie that I think is a good Indiana Jones movie that I think is like so bonkers stupid is when they slide on the motorcycle through the library and then oh. everyone freaks out and runs and comes to a stop and then like a student asks Dr. Jones a question. You don't like that? I no, like it's that. so it's fucking that, dumb. That, it's that feels, bothers you more than anything else? That feels no, like, that bothers okay. me more than anything else in that 45 minute I'm, chunk right, of this right, movie right, that right. feels like it's it's sort of safe. <laughs> There, but no, everything yeah. like there's so much like that. It, to me, that's the same kind of humor 
as the f- fencing with Marion, like telling him how to f- fence correctly, like remember your training while you're fencing on the top of two cars. It's like that same sort of meta humor where the movie knows there's no danger. So it's just making jokes instead of like trying to be a movie anymore. There's a lot of stuff, but anyway, the Actually, really quickly that moment with the student asking him a question to me, doesn't seem that out of step with a lot of other Indiana Jones movies. It really reminds me of the moment in Last Crusade where Indy and Henry spin around in the fireplace and they're like in the the <laughs> Nazi war room and they're like exchange smiles with this pleasant Nazi lady uh, <laughs> right before she shouts alarm at them. Like it's it's kind of in that vein, I think. But I think that's to me, for me personally, that's also where even Last Crusade starts to get a little like, uh, you're you're Wait, really but, pushing but Temple it. Temple of Doom is your indie movie and, because and I grew like, up with it. I'm not I'm not arguing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not arguing Temple of Doom is good. I'm saying I grew up with it, and and that's it. Like yeah. I'm not going to argue Temple of Doom is better than sure. anything, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, I think that's totally fair. Yeah, Trisha. And that that chase through Marshall College, which we could like get to more um, if we want to. But I remember distinctly walking out at the end of the movie and going like that chase was kind of good, like Mm. with the motorcycle and the cars. And I watched it really carefully this time. And Mm -hmm. it's Harrison Ford diving in and out of windows, car windows Mm -hmm. and grabbing a hold of the motorcycle and it looks good. It's all stunt work. Like it's cool. Um, it's a cool idea to bring Indiana Jones's adventures back to his home turf. Mm-hmm. And you, there are some, some stupid moments in it where like the Marcus Brody statue and right. <laughs> okay. Um, but overall that's a really cool sequence. Anyway, I, I just remember that. I agree that when you walk out of this movie or just, you know, start thinking back on it right when you get to the end. You do get really stuck in monkey territory. Mm -hmm. um, And it's hard to remember anything else. But that was what I immediately gravitated towards because it was in the middle of that chase through Marshall College um, that I was like, this is an Indiana Jones movie and I am Mm -hmm. having fun for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, and then the rest of it is is pretty middling, but it's no worse than Temple of Doom, except for some of those moments that are quite bad. Right. And <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on those moments, which I hope we get to, and like what makes them worse. Because I feel like in the Star Wars uh, prequels, we talked a lot about like where the line is. Like we, you know, it's hard to really clearly define the line. Sometimes in what feels like in world versus what feels out of world. And I think with Star Wars, it's really extra slippery. Mm -hmm. But I think with Indiana Jones, I think we can draw a couple. I have a couple ideas about lines. But anyway, so but yeah, that was very similar to my experience of like. This movie's not great um, and it's really bad at points. But at the end of the day, do you want a fourth helping of one of your favorite meals? Mm-hmm. Even if the casserole is cold by now. <laughs> and like, <laughs> the answer is yes. Like, and do I want a fifth helping of this same casserole? I think I do is the but thing. But it's really cold now. It's very, very cold. Yeah, but James Mangold 
still yes. can make good movies. Okay. Maybe it's going to reheat beautifully, you guys. Yeah. We don't know. It's been Some in the fridge for a long time. It's been in the lead line refrigerator for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And Alex, yeah. What, what, what was your impression this time around? Yeah. I mean, my, like Brian said, you know, that, that thing where you have your impression of a movie is maybe it's the lowest moments or highest highs or whatever. And I remember when I saw this movie, it was right out of film school. I was my most kind of like intense, cynical film student self. And I was just so devastated by how stupid it all was. <laughs> and just, you know, the dumb CG, everything. And I just hated everything in the, everything in the Amazon sequence from top to bottom. I just absolutely despised. Yeah. And so I walked out of this movie just feeling like, wow, that was complete, you know, useless, wasted opportunity should never have been made garbage watching it again like michael said after after watching all three of the original trilogy back to back uh there is that kind of magical window of this movie uh before the bad the universally uh thought of as bad section uh that i really enjoyed this time and i really was down to go with the george lucas idea of we're gonna make basically a 50s B-movie in the way that the original trilogy Mm -hmm. was a throwback to these serial adventure shows, you know? So I think there was something there that is a different direction and a bold choice, but I was kind of down with this time. And like that motorcycle chase was a moment where I was kind of taken aback. Like, wait a minute, I forgot about this scene. This is actually Mm -hmm. a really good action scene and it's Mm -hmm. not full of, bullshit cgi nonsense it's actually what i want from indiana jones movie so it was a much more enjoyable experience this time i was ready for aliens i wasn't (laughs) i wasn't uh prepared actually for like the good parts so they were like a nice surprise and then i just had that the same downward slide you know all the way through the end uh so so yeah very interesting and 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 you're right trish i think like there are there's enough in this movie that in comparison with what I just watched in the original trilogy is like, Oh no, this is actually on par with a lot of stuff from the previous Indiana Jones installments. Like there is really goofy stuff in these previous movies. Yeah. Uh, And there's, then there's laws of physics that don't make any sense. And there are weird, magical, crazy things that, that are just jumping the shark in the original trilogy also in, in a lot of cases. So, um, but they don't nuke the fridge. They don't <laughs> monkey the Shia LaBeouf. They know they, they, they <laughs> we don't we don't have we don't have those kind of moments in the original trilogy. So there is I think there is a line crossed here, and I would like to talk about those lines. Well, since it is early on, should we just dive into a nuke the fridge conversation? Sure. <laughs> Let's nuke the fridge, guys. I, I, well, I do want to say something real quick on top of, of Alex's comment, which is something we we mentioned, I think, briefly in our last crusade episode, which is it isn't quite fair to compare a 2008 movie to a eighties trilogy. You know, I think when you say like, well, they did that in, in this movie from 1984. So why can't you do it in 2008? And it's like, well, because movies are different now and people like 2008 is the year of dark Knight and iron man, right? Like to, to do like crazy bonkers things that they do in this movie. I think you could get away with it in the eighties. And I think the problem is that, that there was maybe a feeling that because you could do it for the original trilogy, then it's fine to do now. 
And it's this weird and it's an impossible task, right? Where you are trying to to reboot a series from decades ago. Like it's the thing that, you know, we'll talk about Blade Runner 20, 2049 soon about just sort of like, we're not trying to do that movie anymore. We're trying to do mm-hmm. a movie that feels like a today movie. Mm. Um, now, we don't want an Indiana Jones movie that feels modern, of course, because they're set right. in the past, you know? Like, so what it's do we like, want from it, actually? Right. But I, but I just feel like there are that when you go to a theater in 2008 and you see some of the stuff in this movie, you can't help but feel disappointed because it's not what you expect from a movie today it might have been what you expected from a movie 25 years prior you know and it's a very slippery slope and we can get into it but nuking the fridge yeah well and i think nuking the the fridge falls right into all of this of like it's like you said it is an impossible task and maybe it is just simply impossible because how can you ask the creators of this thing to come back and do it again but the rules have changed, but we still want you to deliver the same like product. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think it is interesting, you know, like what are they supposed to do if not try to continue the legacy and try to deliver on the same things? And how do you update it to work in modern audiences and or work for modern audiences? And so I, I think it is just this weird and I think like you asked it, right? Like, what do we want? Like, what right. did we want from a 2008 Indiana Jones? <laughs> I didn't film? want it at all. No. Well, right. So like, maybe we didn't <laughs> want it at all. We were getting it. Some of the decisions they made clearly, you know, did deliver it, right? Because we're, we're all kind of acknowledging there is this section of it where it's like, oh, this is an Indiana Jones. Like, they've captured something about this that is working in this movie, but also decisions they made like went completely the other way. And I feel like the nuking the fridge is an interesting like first warning sign, right? When you're watching the movie. Yes. But it, it also, again, this time like doesn't feel so far removed in terms of Mm. like, well, and so let's talk about it. Let's start. talking about. I don't think, I don't think nuking the fridge is like the worst thing in the movie. No, (laughs) no, no. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Right. CGI monkeys with Shia LaBeouf swinging. We agree. Like, Those are the worst. We that is the, that worst is the worst thing. Right. That is the worst um, But yeah, so this time I really tried to parse apart what it means to nuke a fridge. And <laughs> I feel like the issue is that it very clearly does transgress implicit rules in the Indiana Jones universe. Things in the Indiana Jones universe can strain credulity in a number of ways, but actually they're, they basically fall into three specific categories. One is magic. It's faces melting off of Nazis. It's spiritual, whatever, Holy grail shit. Like that's (laughs) magic. Okay. The next one is movie magic where they don't show us something and we just buy it because it's kind of off screen where like somebody falls off a cliff and, and climbs back up. Correct. That kind of thing. Right. That's movie magic. They don't show it to us. Great and fine. They're telling us, don't think about this. It's like a serial thing, right? It's like serial adventure stuff. It's movie magic. Don't worry about it. Or like, you know how he, the, the, like, it doesn't really make sense where he like rolls under the door just in time, but like it didn't, really work with the hat and like the timing is not right. That's still movie magic. We're fine with it. We're fine with Mm -hmm. it. And then there's box number three, which is science 
slash like grounded action stuff where they like show it to us or explain it to us to make us believe it. So it's one of those three things. The problem with nuking the fridge is that it's none of those three things. It's nowhere close to being spiritual or supernatural. And because it's a nuclear bomb, it's asking us to believe that it is straight science. Right. Like something that is being explained to us. And it's not movie magic because they show us too much of it. We see with every the, like, we see every part of the process. <laughs> with the lead-lined refrigerator, like it almost would be better if the refrigerator were not lead-lined. It would almost be better if like hmm. Indy just went into like a bunker that was deep underground. We still wouldn't believe it, but we would be like, movie magic. It's that was deep enough underground, or like maybe that was concrete. Right. You know what? Maybe that was that. But if they just didn't show it to us, we'd be like, all right, all right. He just got away somehow. And the problem is it does just enough to make it not exist in any of those neat little boxes that it starts to like set off all of our things. I think the closest thing in the trilogy previous to this is when Henry gets shot with a gunshot, which is grounded action science thing, but he's healed by magic with the Holy Grail. That's the closest one where it like crosses two of those boundaries, but it's the very, very last thing in the movie and by the end of it, we're just like, okay, great. That's fine. Like, I feel like it's it builds to, like, earn one of those things. And the fact that's the other problem with nuking the fridge is that it's right up at the top. It doesn't fall into any of those boxes. And it's totally unbelievable for those reasons. Yeah, I so I, I agree. I think what is interesting is also looking at, though, the things that it does do that feel indie like where it Mm. is kind of uh you know a lot of the action sequences in these movies part of the fun is like the ingenuity of indie he's gotten himself into this crazy situation he's gonna spend a moment realizing he has no idea what he's doing and then find some clever way to get out of the situation and i feel like it does check all those boxes right like that's just one box michael uh sure okay so it's that box um i mean yeah and as part of like an action sequence there's danger sure it's all one box um but i I feel like there is like like all of that is there and it is fun and i i can feel my brain doing that like oh that's clever like i wouldn't have thought of like that as an option blah 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 um and it's just interesting to me that like if that option involves magically not being shot by hundreds of bullets from various Nazis that have all gone to the Stormtrooper Academy, sure. like we believe it. But like because the scale of this is so big and like you're saying, it's an atomic bomb that is rooted <laughs> yeah. in its science. Like we our cultural association with that is that of like, science and it is a very real thing. Yeah. yeah. You're dead right. if that drops so it, you. It's weird because it's it's yeah, like is it more deadifying than hundreds of people shooting bullets at you that only hit the walkways next to you when you're walking? Yeah, I don't but know that's that it's movie magic. I think that falls into the movie magic. There's, box, a, there's where not everybody like everybody misses you. There's not a historical precedent in like film language for surviving like direct blasts from atomic bombs. Like that's not a part of our cultural 
yeah. reading of movies. And right. there's a reason why we also don't like when people survive a hail of bullets, like, like when they don't sure. get even hit like or nicked or whatever. Like, that's not okay. That's just like something we're kind of used to at this point. But it's still it's still a thing that shouldn't exist, I think. Yeah. And I agree yeah. with that point. And that's another reason why the awful sequence later is so bad is because there's thousands of bullets that they are magically not being hit by. Right. So I, I agree. I just thought it was interesting seeing, trying to kind of reverse engineer some of the decision-making and seeing why someone might've thought this is an interesting, fun idea that I could see indie, like, you know, the choice indie makes is an interesting, fun choice. When he then goes sailing across through the air and rolls out well, and like, is fine. Yeah. Like, it's like a, the, yeah. si- the single object thrown from the right. city <laughs> happens to be the one fridge that he is in and lands perfectly outside the blast radius. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where it gets frustrating. It's like if he had flown a couple hundred feet or something, then maybe we'd buy it. But of course you can't because then there's a nuclear explosion going off. So you have to get him out of the radius of it, which means you have to throw him like a fucking mile or something or whatever. (laughs) But then he's fine. Like, like that's the other problem too, is that like we've talked, I think we talked about in in the, um, in the trilogy episodes, like if something happens in mission impossible, like they always sell the like he just barely pulled it off or like right. it really hurt or whatever, you know, especially in the, in the later ones. Um, but I think that's the other problem, too, is that we're seeing Indy fly, you know, a mile and land on the ground. And then he like gets up and walks away. Basically, it's not like he's in intensive care for six months like he should be. He's just he's fine. Yeah, I wonder, too, if there's something about a nuclear explosion specifically like if that were just a big bomb it would be different but there's something really dark about like that chapter in america's history like yeah we got a lot of great b you know sci-fi movies out of it um but that doesn't mean it's like fun i guess in any way to think about nuclear weapons and like the fact that there was and this Actually, the movie isn't really about this much at all. But like the fact that, you know, we were testing nuclear weapons here on American soil and there was kind of like a tourism industry around it a little bit where like Mm -hmm. people would go, you know, to a a very distant site, but to like watch the mushroom cloud from like far away and stuff like that. That's dark. Like that's a very dark fact. Um, And playing on it again, I think if if it were later in the movie, it would still be really dumb, but it would feel like thematic. It would be feel like it, it had been built to potentially, right. right? Like if you could work your way into it where like, cause I like the idea of an Indiana Jones movie that takes place a decent chunk of it takes place here in the U S that's mm-hmm. like a cool idea. And so if you could like work your way toward like the United States involvement in what was happening in the cold war, great thematically, if we can like kind of, wrestle our way there and then there's a nuclear explosion and indy's like kind of close to it and barely survives it i feel like yeah but it happens so early on the stakes are not built up there's no thematic work groundwork that's been laid at that point and then like i said it it sort of just transgresses these other rules internal rules that the the series has had up until that point that there's i feel like wow i mean (laughs) Maybe save your maybe save your really big ideas 
for a little bit, a little bit later, or just never. Which they do also. <laughs> they have other big ideas. They do. You're right. Yeah. You're really right about that. I mean, it's so interesting because there's there is this big idea at the center of this movie, which is that you know the George Lucas kind of attachment to we're going to do a 50s B movie alien movie as the next Indiana Jones. And, you know, I think Mike, on a, I forget if you were on mic or off mic, but you were mentioning that Spielberg was kind of like, uh, I don't want to do an Indiana Jones movie with aliens. And Lucas was like, yeah, but it's going to have aliens, but they're interdimensional. So they're not really aliens. And just it, there's this mm-hmm. weird feeling in this movie of what are we doing here? Like if we're going to try to recreate the Indiana Jones of old and like modernize it, update it, make it about Indy having a son and kind of a new generation, like then let's just stick to magical things. Let's stick mm-hmm. to artifacts that are not, don't have spaceships attached to them or nukes. Uh, or you can be really bold and maybe we could go a totally new direction with the franchise for a different era of history. Like maybe Indiana Jones as a franchise could have been reinvented at this moment to be like, you know, now we're in the fifties. It's a different time. There are different kinds of movies and TV shows being made in this era. We're going to throw back to those instead of the kind of 1930s era stuff. And, and that would be divisive and probably piss off a lot of people. But if you kind of, I think just committed and really embraced it in a way that didn't feel, I don't know, almost like, resentful or half-assed or wishy-washy the way this movie feels to me, I could have maybe gotten on board with it because there's, there's this weird blend of, of things in this movie that don't feel like they ever come together. And you've got the, the, the kind of a obligatory imagery we need for the trailers, you know, of like indie this is in the trailers. They had him in that one shot where he's like resting on a stone as it kind of like, pivots down mm. like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like an awkward shot mm. but that was like the reveal <laughs> in the trailers you need the grave robbing uh jungle you know yeah. ancient ruin stuff for the marketing essentially but if the story is really about aliens and the 50s then maybe we don't need a jungle chase in that movie maybe it should take place more in america and it's a totally different story with this character at its center that could have been interesting but instead we have this almost I feel like Spielberg was just kind of upset that he had to make this weird mishmash of things and just mm-hmm. did the best he could, but didn't try too hard. And we got this as a result. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, Harrison Ford also didn't want to do an Indiana Jones movie with aliens. So <laughs> neither the director nor the star <laughs> wanted it. And George was like, well, but we're, we're just going to do it anyway. And then we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but I think here's the here's the thing. I think there are two things, there are two problems with aliens as a general concept. One of which is, I mean, as as a plot device in this movie. Um, one of which is that if you look at the the original trilogy, we basically have biblical things and sort of ancient occult things, stuff that's been around for thousands of years, right? Yeah. Um, Aliens, the the sort of the gray alien concept has only been around is like 20th century concept, really. Like the idea of aliens has been around forever, but the idea, like the specific sort of thing that we see in this movie has been around basically since like Roswell and, and the the early 20th century. So you are taking something very recent 
instead of what I think was cool about the original movies, which is you're taking something historical again, because it, it's Indiana Jones. He's an archeologist. He is unearthing history, not just it's the fifties and he's unearthing something that happened, you know, basically 10 years ago, granted in the world of the movie, it happened a long time ago. Um, but, uh, but in our consciousness in like human consciousness of this, of this thing, it's, it's a whole different thing. Um, and, the the things being explored in the original trilogy were not sort of pop culture things uh, at at the time. Like like the Holy Grail. When you say Holy Grail, the first thing everyone thinks about is Indiana Jones. They took this thing, or maybe Monty Python, but they took this thing that had been basically absent from pop culture and put it into pop culture. Aliens have been around for fucking ever. Steven Spielberg already made like three movies about them or more. I don't know how many. So like you, you're basically just taking, it's like the, the easiest like thing to do, like the lowest common denominator, easiest magical thing to do that I think just makes it feel really shallow in an Indiana Jones movie. Alex is really excited to say something. Well, I just, I think there is, but there is like an obvious opportunity here because there's so much speculation, so many conspiracy theories and ideas about ancient civilizations and aliens, you know, the pyramids and these ancient, you know, uh, South American civilizations having, you know, imagery in their paintings that look like extraterrestrials coming down to mm-hmm. give them, you know, knowledge that is part of the lore of a lot of ancient cultures. So there is a fun, real connection there in the history to draw from aliens to the kind of work Indiana Jones does. Uh, I agree though, that like, even though you can make that connection, should you, because there's not necessarily the same kind of, I don't know, heart or depth or meaning embedded in that kind of a story as there is in the quest for immortality, which is this much more mythic and thematic idea than I guess I want all the knowledge from the alien skull brain uh, is, the, I guess, the theme of this one. Um, I don't know. Well, in fairness, sort of the idea of a lot of this came from the existence of crystal skulls, which are real. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean skulls, you know, from South America carved out of quartz are essentially a real thing. And they're very controversial artifacts. Like a, a lot of people like who, when they originally turned up, which I believe was like in the late 1800s, um, people were claiming that they were like ancient, like, you know, like Mayan or, or earlier. Um, and, and so the, you know, there's a comment in the movie where it's like, how could ancient tools carve something like this? Um, and there was like some mysteriousness around them as artifacts. Now, the movie doesn't tell you that these things exist. Um, and that in itself is a problem, which we've discussed at length, which is like, if you want us to know about a legendary thing, it better be in the text. Um, and you know, things like the Ark and the Grail are sort of already in, in the consciousness, at least in Western consciousness, mm-hmm. um, in a way that don't need a ton of explanation, yet there is still more explanation in the text <laughs> that I think you have here. Mm-hmm. The other thing about Crystal Skulls, though, is like, they're kind of all fake. I mean, you can do your own research on it, but even if the kind of joke in this Indiana Jones movie is that... so. At least in my understanding, there's been very little evidence that 
crystal skulls are all that old. It's like people have claimed that they found them at like very ancient dig sites, but that's not actually very well documented. And it looks like they were made in the 1960s by dentists or like with dental tools. (laughs) Anyway, so they're, they're kind of a hoax, right? In the same way that crop circles kind of are and like other alieny things have like an air of hoaxness around them. Mm -hmm. And so like, if that's part of the joke that people are somebody like, um, John Hurt's character, Ox, if he's taking it super seriously, then I miss indie skepticism, mm-hmm. right? Like, even back when this movie was set in the 1950s and 60s, these things existed, but there was a lot of scientific skepticism around them. And so I feel like if maybe if they just front-loaded the alien stuff, where they're like, everybody says these are from, these are impossible to have made in the ancient past and they must be evidence of other visitors from other worlds. And Indy had been like, no, no way. Mm -hmm. These are all a hoax. Like, I feel like that's such a trademark of Indy is all of that skepticism. And for these to be, you know, he takes it pretty much dead seriously from the start. And even when Ox like is out of his mind, um, Indy's still like, yeah, Probably these are these are evidence of something supernatural. I don't know. There's just too much belief. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I, I think we've complained in the previous episodes about there not being enough belief on Indy's part if he's gone through the events of Raiders right. and right. blah blah blah. But I agree that like for the plot for the movie thing to happen, that is a useful part of it. I think it is this kind of weird thing where. You know, if you were to show an alien, like on paper, the difference between like Holy Grail and a crystal skull that might have been from an alien contact with an ancient civilization, they'd be like, okay, like imaginary history things of import. Like, I don't see why that's different. Right. Mm. But it is. And I, I think is. there is this a, a different cultural thing, like we're all talking about with aliens. And I feel like. Ultimately, the bigger problem is that the characters and what their arcs are dealing with have nothing to do with nothing. The MacGuffin, mm. whatsoever. Themes. Right. Yeah. There's the, the themes. Themes. And, and it's interesting because you know, as we talked about in the Last Crusade, part of why that works so well is because the hunt for the object is the hunt for your father. Is the hunt for like there's all right. those things intermeshed, and it's like it kind of is there and that like the journey together is what brings you together, but it's, it's also just completely separate. Right? Yeah. Why like, there's no reason. What does that aliens? have to do with that? Right. Yeah. 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 So I feel like that's on top of all the other cultural problems. I think what also ultimately is, you know, when you get to the final act, it doesn't feel like there's any meaning happening. Also, they've just, clearly died 800 times but somehow didn't so it's sort of um well yeah yeah, i think that just wrapping up on what's wrong with aliens uh i feel like (laughs) things that are earthbound and very ancient just have like a seriousness to them and i think that's what you were identifying michael which is like it was it's been buried in the ground for 3,000 years, who knows what the hell it means. And so there's a real earnestness and seriousness to that that just, it feels like, you know, 
like those layers of spider webs that India is always like walking through, I feel like. So when they're in the tomb, for example, in Peru, and there's the usual skeletons, and even though there's like guardians those mm-hmm. like yeah parkour guardians of the, who, who, the like, tombs <laughs> built themselves into the wall so they could break just, through it just later to wait. Like, yeah yeah what? it's a very elaborate camouflage that seems like it would take a long time to right. apply to your body like, and then you'd have to do just they, hold do, do they do still. shifts or? every morning yeah. they wake up and build themselves <laughs> into the wall and then at night if no one breaks in then they <laughs> right but actually but again that's very earthbound and right. it's very old and we don't know anything about it so it feels like it's more i don't know why are ghosts scarier than aliens they just are because they're here with us potentially whereas aliens are just over there somewhere and they're probably not i don't know there's there's like a weird psychological response to things that are like human bound um and all of Indy's adventures should be that way, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, it's the magic kind of metaphysical thing right. versus the like, if there are aliens, there are literally, they're over there somewhere. Right. But like, that's not magic. It's just that they're over there. <laughs> they're just very and, far and aliens, over there. Aliens are more concrete, you know, like if, if, you know, they, they have technology and they came here and they have a UFO buried underneath this temple and like, it's, it's all very concrete in a way that, the magic of the Ark or the Grail or even the stones in Temple of Doom are not concrete. The, the, the magic is almost unexplainable or impossible to understand. Whereas aliens are kind of more understandable as these as a phenomenon. And in these movies' best moments, they don't try to explain. It goes right. back to what I was saying about the mm-hmm. boxes. Yeah. If it's in the magic box, leave it over there and don't explain it. If it's in the science box, you better explain it. Or if it's movie magic, whatever. But... Right. This definitely blurs all of those lines in a very unpleasant way. And then also, it's not just alien interdimensional beings. It's <laughs> yeah. part of the result of that is a character who can only speak in riddles, which is some lady in the water bullshit. <laughs> like, you, you can communicate with him telepathically, but he only speaks in riddles. He can only tell you the next line that you need to know to progress. It's, it's just so... It's like It just feels like... Uh, like a, I don't know, a student film or something, right? Like there's just something like, uh, again, it's sort of like the lowest common denominator version of things. Like it's like first drafty type stuff, yeah. which yeah. this wasn't. It's the 11,000th draft I by tense people, which is like part of the problem too, right? Is like, let's take this from here and let's take that from here. My favorite uh, line from the Wikipedia was, M. Night Shyamalan was hired to write an intended <laughs> 2002 shoot or was intended to write... F- Sorry, I'm going to start that over. M. Night Shyamalan was hired to write for an intended 2002 shoot, but he was overwhelmed writing a sequel to a film he loved, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, but mostly claimed it was difficult to get Ford, Spielberg, and Lucas to focus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagining that like room of M. Night right. Shyamalan with those three guys trying to like break a story together. Like, hey, 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 I'm here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> quick round of what would this movie have been called? Where Frank Darabont's script sounds awesome, Indiana Jones and the City of Gods. Oh, yeah. yeah. That sounds like an Indiana Jones movie. Spielberg mm-hmm. read the script and loved it. Lucas said, oh, there's not enough aliens. Um, and then the the next people was the Atomic Ants, Destroyer of Worlds. David Kep wanted to call it Indiana Jones and the Son of Indiana Jones. <laughs> Wait, what? Like, 
Yes. Look, David Kep had had a good run of like three years in the mid nineties. He has not had a good track record since I know he is not. He is not. Show me three good movies he's written in the past 20 years. He is the second most successful screenwriter of all time sure. in terms of money. So Michael I just, Bay is one of the most successful directors of all time in terms of money. That he gave us mean. Jurassic Park. He can do yeah, whatever sure. he wants to do. Michael Bay did not. Just, I mean, hopefully yeah. no one is confused by that. <laughs> no, but David I just want that. Right. Michael David Bay. Lest we give any extra credit to Michael Bay. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, all of that is a problem, but I feel like, nope. What was my thought? Nope. Michael. Well, I feel like, Brian, you also left off the the title that George Lucas wanted, which was Mm. Indiana Jones and the Saucer Men. (laughs) Uh, Attack of the Clones. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Lucas knows how to name them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's... Saucer uh, (laughs) Men. As I feel like we've, we've definitely explored, aliens, weird choice, Maybe could have kind of worked. I think like you were saying, Alex and Trisha, like we didn't need to go all the way to it. Like if, if the, if the revelation was simply like, Oh, there are aliens out there. Like, or there, maybe, or there were aliens like 2000 years ago yeah, that right. came right. to earth. And that's like right. a revelation. That's, that's kind of cool. Right. That's right, like right. a fun, like little jump thing. The like, we're going to show you the, fucking saucer fly into the air like yeah that's well and before that we're gonna have the skeletons come together to make a really bad cgi goofy alien who's gonna lean forward at the camera and make a face (laughs) yeah well i want to make sure we cover cgi before we leave um but uh first of all you mentioned cobwebs trisha one Mm -hmm. thing i wrote down was like cobweb tech highly improved since the 80s like these cobwebs looked great a lot of the the india the raiders and temple and last crusade cobwebs didn't quite believe them looked a little fake these great cobwebs um but i do feel like since we've sort of talked about how aliens unconnected to the characters i do think the character stuff that is happening here Mm. is interesting like i think the idea to take you know father-son story right which we've talked about was neat. I thought anyway, in last crusade to kind of bring that element to it also of like Indy discovers he's a father and has a child with Marion that he didn't know about. Like that's kind of fun. I feel like the, the quicksand scene is like a little goofy, but like kind of fun also to see the, like the back and forth play. And when mutt mutt, uh, comes up <laughs> with, you know, it's like, give me something to hang on to. He comes back and he's got the snake. Like, I feel like that's just yeah. clever. Like, I feel like that's fun. That feels like indie-ish to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel like the the character stuff was fun. I feel like the character of Mutt as like a, you know, now Indy is in the wiser old professor role is interesting. I feel like the, you know, seeing him give advice to Mutt before he knows he's his son is then funny when he revert like all those little things feel like the Spielberg fun kind of family adventure yeah. stuff that I like and that I wish had more of a connection to anything else going on in the movie. Right. If if the movie was built around that and everything was supporting that, it could have been a great Spielberg film. Right. This is just like a weird thing, but we talked a little bit in the Last Crusade episode about or it was Temple of Doom about like Indy's personal investment in the MacGuffin 
and how that really mm. helps if Indy really yeah. cares about what the MacGuffin is. Right. And so the thing with Raiders and Last Crusade is that he has different reasons, but still they're like, these are important artifacts to him for a reason. And we get that. The thing about the MacGuffin in this is that it's a person named Ox that everybody just talks about a lot. And <laughs> mm-hmm. we've never met him and don't know why we should care about him. And he is, there's not really a cinematic shorthand for us to understand why we care about Ox. Mm-hmm. Like right. if he were related to one of the characters or if it were Marcus Brody or Sala or Henry Jones Sr. Or if it were Marion. The thing is, why, I why feel like... Why don't you reveal that it's Marion? wouldn't right. it just have been Marion to begin with? Her name's Mary. Mary like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> The thing is, I feel like they sacrificed so much for that dumb reveal in the middle. Right. Where if, mm-hmm. if Shia LaBeouf had shown up and been like, hey, they took my mom. Her name is Marion Williams. Who? Marion Ravenwood. Oh my God, I'm going to go save her. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So okay. much more investment. So much more. Instead of this random human named Ox that we've never met. Like, I don't know. And then they are like following him around and he was in this cell. And there's just, again, he carved, someone like, who is what into the cell. Like, <laughs> I was so confused during that whole section. Like, he. He carved all these weird clues and a map of a cemetery. And I guess he assumed somebody would follow him or he was just crazy. And when you're crazy with alien in your brain, you just carve things. That whole, I don't, I didn't follow any of that. Well, and in the last crusade episode, we talked about how much work the cold open does or the teaser open with river Phoenix and, um, you know, his father does right at the beginning where it is invests us as the audience in that father son relationship. What if there had been a scene like that at the beginning with Ox, where it was like, here was us back adventuring mm. in the 19, late 1930s or whatever. Right. And yeah. you, it becomes like a, do you DH Harrison Ford with CG or like, what do you do for that sequence? I, I'm not saying I know the answer to that, but narratively speaking, if you show us visually why we're supposed to care about Ox, that if you really have to have him essentially be the MacGuffin, then we're on board for it. It's right. just too much that of a, an off-screen character that we don't know for us to really get invested in like, oh my God, who has Ox? Is he okay? Like, I can't, there's like at no point do I care about that in this right. movie. Yeah, I think that's a great point. What I'm getting from this conversation is that Trisha should have done the 20th draft on this script and maybe yeah. we could have <laughs> I certainly would have cashed the check and given it a try. <laughs> <sighs> well, is that a good transition to a question you potentially had for us, Trisha? Indeed. Um, so I was thinking a lot about this and I have an answer, but I would love to hear your answers. Let's say that you are hired to write the fifth Indiana Jones movie. And to be clear, This movie is already written. It's already being filmed. We're all going to watch it next year, whether we want to or not. (laughs) (laughs) So our pitches mean nothing in the scheme of things. But if you are tasked with writing the fifth Indiana Jones movie and nothing in nothing about the like material situation is different than it is in real life. So you have to deal with the fact that Crystal Skull is canon now. It's a part of the franchise and you have to deal with Harrison Ford's age, which is 80. So, what do you do? Who's got a pitch for me? 
Brian. Um, well, we all know that Indy is successful with the ladies, mm-hmm. which means he probably has some other kids he doesn't know about. Okay, um, I like and, it. And motorcycles are dangerous. Um, so <laughs> poor Mutt, he had a good run, but mm-hmm. he he crashed. He stabbed himself with the with the switchblade, um, and it didn't go well. But he has this other kid who's you know in his mid thirties and is played by who knows like actual handsome rugged actor that people like. Um, okay. You know, a like <laughs> if Anton Yelchin were still with us, or or like oh. you know somebody like Love cool. And uh, and and then that's somebody else pick it up from there because that's my main thing. It's just, <laughs> yeah, just man. trying to get rid of the character of Mutt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, so okay. w- once that's done, I'm fine. I'm in. All right, all right. That's a good start because I think you know, obviously, what I want from the franchise is, is to somehow make me feel the way I feel again the way I did during the Last Crusade, and that movie works for me so much because of that thematic cohesion where it's really about a character, these characters and their relationship that is at the core of the story. The MacGuffin is directly tied to that. And, you know, the, the thing that is at stake at the end of the movie is this person that Indy cares about and their relationship. Um, So I would love to see another movie in this franchise, especially if this is going to finally end it. (laughs) Uh, have that gravi- that that gravitas and that heart and mm. be kind of a farewell to Indy in the same way that the last crusade felt like a farewell to that trilogy uh where it's like the, you know shit gets real the, the really meaningful things are going down for Indy and the people he cares about so whether that is his newly discovered other child or uh Marion or or something I, I want it to be centered around Something very meaningful. John Reese Davies is still with us. Sala. Yeah, bring Sala mm. back. Uh, but but something where, yeah, at the core of the story is something about, you know, Indy's legacy or, you mm. know, if this is his farewell, like what what matters at the end of the day for him as a character? What does he what does he become? What does he learn? Like in his twilight years, who like who is he and what was the meaning of all this? I I, I want a, a meaty conclusion that, that makes me emotional and makes me able to say farewell to this character without a bad taste in my mouth. Mm. Right. I don't know exactly what the surface of that story looks like, but that's what I want it to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I don't think also, I'm going to get that, but that's what I want. It's set in 1969 and we go to the moon and we find oh. something there <laughs> that okay, was okay. that was oh. there before humans ever set foot on the moon, and Indy has to like look into it and investigate. Um, and then there's a whole monologue about how going to space is for science and research, and not because you're a rich billionaire asshole who wants to waste all their money on going to space. Okay, I like it. I like it. I think I think you're you're doing something thematic here, Brian. I think it's working. I don't there's know like, just just why that came to my mind. I don't know. It's like not relevant or anything. <laughs> there's a lot of like weird like transformers, like yeah, dark, 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 of, dark, of dark of the moon. Dark of the moon. Yeah. Which Look, like, Indy doesn't go to space. To be clear, sure. Okay, okay. Okay. But just yeah, the Shia and the moon, and I <laughs> feel right. like one of the Transformers movies is about how the Transformers were the aliens yes. that helped. They like yeah, built yeah, the pyramids. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. 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 I'm upset oh, that Jesus. I know that. Yeah. Um, Michael. Well, yeah, I think what you were saying, Alex, I think maybe is attainable. I mean, you know, thinking about 
James Mangold and Logan and like right. the send off yeah. to that's, Logan. That's what Logan was. I want Logan yeah. again. Yeah. And I think, I think what's tricky about Indy is that there aren't any clear like inner demons that he's been fighting. Right. Like for the most part, he's been yeah. pretty like, okay. And fun. And like maybe kind of a jerk. And I don't know. He's not been a perfect person by any means, but I, part of me wants there to be some kind of reflection on who he was. And and Wolverine kind of does, or Logan kind of does this where it's like, Logan literally has to fight a clone of like younger him. And it's like, you know, all that stuff. But mm-hmm. he learns a reason for like why he's fighting or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I feel like something like that, where like Indy has to go against like a literal younger him, but now he has this like the wisdom of a life long lived that makes him recontextualize his behaviors or what archaeology can mean. Like, I feel like I want him to like reckon with who he was and who he is now and what we as a society are supposed to take away from this time we've spent with our hero. I'm, I'm picturing like Jesse Eisenberg as like, the antagonist, oh, no. like, like, no. but like, he's like, he's like an asshole archaeologist okay, who is yeah. like uh. all of the things that like Indy would have been back then. And then mm-hmm. Indy has to go against him, but he's like younger and, and like, whatever, you know, I don't actually want that, but I'm just picturing <laughs> like that type of character. Sure. Like the antagonist is a sort of smarmy archaeologist. Mm. See, Michael, you are hitting on exactly what I was thinking about when I was trying to do this thought exercise for myself, which is I would love to see a movie that in which a real life older Harrison Ford and Steven Spielberg um, look back on what it was that they were, you know, creating this sort of mythos around um, and like this American hero that they created Um, so I'd love that. My thought was if you still want to have a great adventure, which I do, to be honest, like why not create a frame story with older Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones in the present, which is like in the sixties, late sixties. Um, and there's like a young, FBI agent or she's from some, it's a, she obviously it's probably Mm. a young woman of color from some, you know, (laughs) FBI agency. uh, And she comes to him and she's like, Hey, this thing popped up. uh, But you are the person who found it back in the day. And so we need you to like, tell us what it means and whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, not dissimilar Mm. from the way that this opens where they're like, you found this artifact, Dr. Jones, you tell Mm -hmm. us about it. So kind of borrowing that idea, but make it an actual frame story where, so that takes place in one time. And then, there's another whole half of the movie that takes place with like a young Indiana Jones cast a different actor um, to play. So you can have a lot of that like globe trotting, you know, like really brash young Indiana Jones stuff. I mean, you could literally and bring then, back Sean Patrick Flannery from the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, the TV show to just play him again. Sure. I think there are, are a lot of casting choices with that. And then you make that like more of a classic sort of jungle, you know, run around adventure thing. But then also give Harrison Ford some stuff to do. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so like make build out the frame story where it's not just like a couple of scenes where it's like bad guys in the present in the late 60s are coming to get them. And they want the artifact that the you know young agent is is here to see him about. And so they have to like do some adventures in the present as well. But if you could pull that off, you could kind of thematically tie everything together and 
you could basically give yourself options for Indiana Jones six where you have, you could either make it like a past adventure and reboot it completely with that young actor that you cast in the flashback part, or you could make this young woman, this like, you know, agent in the sixties, you could make her the new kind of Indiana Jones and give her the inheritance of that sort of role. So I feel like, if you just kind of can find the theme, then I, I do think there's a way to save this series. I really do think so. Mm-hmm. And if, if you absolutely have to keep making more Indiana Jones movies and you want to make this one a really good way to honor the character, I think you can. And I agree. I hold out hope for what James Mangold is going to do. Yeah. There's that, you know, what you're raising is like, I feel like that, that's all your pitch there, Trisha, is like a really smart way to approach this. And it just raises the the more existential question of, like, why do we feel the need to have more of these movies? Like, why can't we let, why can we, why can we keep the arc closed? Why can't we keep the grail in its cave? Let the past die. Like, let's just let, (laughs) we have this beautiful, these, these beautiful movies that meant so much to us. And like, can't, like, I wish we could just make a new thing. Like, why? Right. Like, no. Like, why do we have to pretend <laughs> like this actor can ever be Harrison Ford? Like, like if we recast like a younger actor, it's, it's, nev- it's never going to feel right. It's, it's always going to be wrong. It's money. It's, I know. <laughs> the I just, answer's money. I'm sorry. Just, it is. I'm so but tired. it's also like, I, I think that in some franchise cases, there is nothing that can be said that nothing new to be said that hasn't already been said. But I don't think that's the case for Indiana Jones. I think there's a lot more potentially to be said about this genre. You know, it wasn't like Lucas and Spielberg back in 1981 were interested in really like diving into like what serials meant in the 1930s, but inadvertently they did end up there. Right. Um, By, inviting the American public in the eighties back into that genre, they ended up, you know, as sort of a natural byproduct of doing that, commenting on it. And I think that, you know, setting crystal skull in the 1950s was not necessarily a bad move because they wanted to explore a different genre. And the character I think was potentially equipped to say something about the cold war, mm-hmm. you know, probably like, why not? If Indiana Jones is about like uh, America's presence globally, then why not? Why couldn't he say something about the cold war? And I, I think that there is potentially more to be said about this, even if it's only in hindsight. Right. But I feel like you have to kind of consciously tackle that. If you're going to tackle Indiana Jones five with any amount of gravity, which is not necessarily anybody's priority when right. writing Indiana Jones five, to be honest. But again, James Mangold has, has proven himself to. It's true. It's yeah. true. Right. I and can't Harrison wait Ford to see it. Loves to die in movies and kill true. the heroes that he's built. Right. So Truly. I'll, I'll do it again. If you kill my character, so I never have to come back unless it's a dream. Oh story. yeah. That's also part of my pitch is that he dies on screen textually. Sure. As part of. Right. right. Yeah. Um, Speaking Let of the young- man rest. Right, of course. <laughs> yes. um, speaking of young Indiana Jones, I did watch a couple episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles over the past few weeks, and it's—I I don't recommend it. It's, it's like I—it's cool if you want to if you can like handle some like very early '90s TV, but um, but it's it's pretty rough, and it's not 
super exciting either. Um, but uh, here's the problem with the proposed Indiana Jones five is that I think there's, there's something unfixable that I have a theory about, which is Steven Spielberg has always been great at making movies that are both excellent films and big blockbuster movies, right? So mm-hmm. we have Jaws and we have Indiana Jones and, and all this stuff, Jurassic Park, obviously. Um, but then the terminal came out in 2004 and then in 2005, both war of the worlds and Munich came out. Mm-hmm. And my theory is the only way that was possible was that Steven Spielberg prestiged himself. He went to David Bowie and said, I want to make two movies and I can't choose. So he made, but like it was a multiplicity problem where the big blockbuster fun guy came out and he went off and made um, Crystal Skull and the BFG and Ready Player One. And then the like, I make serious films guy came out and he made War Horse and Lincoln and The Post. Like he made like, solid films that are not exciting, but like, good job. You made a movie. Um, and those are the two people we have now making movies. And (laughs) and, unless we can like get them to work together and settle their differences and make Mm. Indiana Jones five, we have a little bit of an issue there. Cause who, cause who makes it? That's a really great way to, Hmm. to kind of, attach a story and a visual to latter day Spielberg, like (laughs) how to make sense of this filmography. That's a really interesting it was something I was thinking about recently, which yeah. I was like, he either makes like good, solid drama films or he makes like big blustering movies that don't really work. And he somehow has like, it seems like he's like lost the ability to make things that are both. And or he excuses himself from the director's seat. And that's what he's doing with Indy 5. And it's, you know, probably of the course. right call. Yeah, yeah. Like, also, let that, like, let that man rest, too. He's, you're right. he's, done, rest. he's done his part. <laughs> he sounded Very like he much. didn't really even want to do Indy 4 either. Right. But it was right. Just, yeah. everyone was asking for it. And, like, George and Harrison were bored. And so I was like, oh, I guess. You, you, can, you can feel it in the movie, honestly. Like, I think there, there's a, there's, there are some sequences that I can feel some love going into them. And there's other sequences that really feel like, kind of phoning it in where it's just, mm-hmm. he's got to do it. It's obligatory. And here we are. Let's just do it. I'll let the guys at ILM kind of finish it in post. Uh, and it, it just doesn't have that. I mean, because Spielberg, we expect so much from Spielberg. I mean, he does, when you were rewatching you know, Raiders and uh, Last Crusade, I talked about Last Crusade, rewatching it. It just, it feels perfect to me in the sense that every shot, every cut, every flourish of the soundtrack just feels right on target in a way that I don't feel at all in a movie like Crystal Skull. It feels sloppy in a way that his best movies feel so precise and so lovingly crafted. But in his defense, Spielberg owns his shit. Like anytime he's talking to anybody, anybody about the movies that he's made, especially in recent years, whether or not he would make that same decision again, he stands by his decisions in the sense that he mm. owns the fact that he made them. He was like, yep, maybe it wasn't the right call, but that's what I decided to do. Mm. Here's the reasons X, Y, and Z. And that's the position I was in. And that's what I did. And I feel like that in itself is remarkable maturity. I mean, yeah. obviously by now he is one of our most mature filmmakers because he's certainly one of our most prolific. And what Spielberg understands 
all the way down to his bones, it seems like, at least when you read interviews with him, is he firmly takes responsibility. He knows what it means to be the director. He knows what it means to be the person driving the creative to the decisions. And that is the person who just takes responsibility for whatever the movie ends up being, regardless of all of the gray area of however many cooks were involved and all of the different obligations and all of the different like moving parts, millions of moving parts that go into making a film. Spielberg knows what it means to be wearing the captain's hat. And or the baseball cap. As the case may be. And I really respect the hell out of that. Like, And when you read interviews with him about Crystal Skull, he's like, yep, that's what we did. That was the decision we made. Here's why. There you go. Like, And I just think that that's so commendable and it's such a mark of maturity it's such the mark of someone who's had a very long career that knows what it is to have great some of the best movies of all time on your Mm -hmm. resume and then a lot of medium ones and some bad ones but that's what you get you get the wisdom that comes from that length of experience yeah and i'll just add that i think i don't think you can be that prolific if you are so perfectionistic and so it you know uh I like, like, you know, I am a lot of times with my own creative work, just way too hung up on, you know, overthinking, like, oh, that wasn't as good as it should have been. I wish I had done that better. Like, I think you just have to have a mindset of this is my job. I'm doing the work and I'm doing my best and it's never going to be perfect. And I think it's just much healthier mindset that he's uh, he's displaying, displaying there than a lot of us have where we have this kind of overly precious artiste mindset about our own work. And as audience members, too, we want our filmmakers to be, you know, somehow perfect and wave their magic wands and just make it the movie that we want in our brains. Yeah, that we imagined from the trailer. Right. And that's not what their job is. Right. And I mean, I think in a natural outcome of a less precise approach of, you know, I think there was a lot of planning. They did tons of previs on on this. So, like, it's not like, you know, they just, like, showed up and you know, decided to wing it. But there is a certain amount of that that I know he does do about, like, yep. on the day, like, let's let's run it. Okay, we're going to shoot it like this. I just came up with, a, like, a thing, and I'm just going to go with my gut and go with what feels right. And so, of course, you're not always going to get something great out of it. But to be relying on your gut and your intuition and to have such a high average, like you're saying, yeah. Trisha, is like the mark of someone who just truly knows cinema, partially because he helped fucking create what yes. we think of as cinema. As cinema. Um, <laughs> but I feel like that's just, yeah, the endlessly remarkable thing about Steven Spielberg. Big time. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull or... Indiana Jones. We'll we'll just we'll give you mm, some flexibility okay. uh, there. Are you giving um, yourself some flexibility? Because no, I, my my lesson is from this movie for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna start. Okay. Go. I think this movie did more to harm CGI than maybe anything else that's ever mm. happened. Mm. Um. And there's like ever 
like I feel like it set us back like a decade in terms of like it's, CGI's yeah. reputation. Right. Because this was like the same year as like Benjamin Button, which like as we talked about isn't like perfect by any means, but was like a impressive. landmark yeah. and yeah, extremely impressive. And look at what we can do and how close we can get to like CGI that like tells the story. And in Minority Report, I'm pretty sure I complained about the Spielberg overexposure thing. Mm. And I feel like that's happening in this movie, especially in that first 20 minutes where they're outside yeah. the warehouse. It's like, yeah, it looks it's like it's green screen and it's not. <laughs> right. And like, but it's lit. Like, clearly there's like a fake key light, but it's also like sunlight. And I, I, somehow the cinematography makes things that aren't fake look fake. Right. Which then just yeah. sets up a terrible you know, meta experience of, you know, the visual effects and the special effects where, you know, Harrison Ford is swinging onto like cars and like he's doing stunts, but most of the time it looks fake because of so many of the other technical decisions that were made. And then just the, the monkey swinging sequence is just like the ants, the ants and the ant, like waterfalls. I just don't The waterfalls are just, it's just why like we don't need this it's Who wants so this? it's just very very perplexing to me the decision making that went into that because there is a way to do <laughs> visual effects well and i feel like we knew that in 2008 so why and what happened and will we ever know i don't know but somehow the visual effects look worse than they should have been. Like they look right. bad for 2008 visual effects. Um, and like, you know, I never want to like imply that people didn't work hard or do good work, right? There's lots of things that go into these things. But I feel like if you're hinging so much of your story on these sequences that are going to rely on these visual effects, like, like just some, uh, like, well, try a little bit more i don't know it just feels yeah. like it 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 was that's where i feel and this is probably projection the little bit of the uh yeah well we'll we'll figure it out like it'll be fine someone else will make it like look good it'll all come together in a way that you know maybe it could have maybe that's not a, the wrong decision but it didn't work out and so just being aware of how all these things help to create the tapestry of the world of the story that you're creating. And if you're not going to have time to deliver all of it, like don't lean as hard on it. So that's kind of my little rant about the CGI in this movie and how it yeah. hurts CGI's reputation. It's a really interesting point because I do, I do think walking out of this movie, it, it, it was part of that era where I decided that I was just like, so sick of all this like bad CGI in modern movies, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think there's some Marvel movies too that, you know, had really good CGI, but then other ones that didn't have such great CGI. And I think there was this era in that, like, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s where CGI was getting that bad rep. Whereas before it was this amazing technology that was making things like Titanic possible. And, you know, CGI was this amazing revolution. Mm -hmm. And I think there was somewhere in here where it started to just feel gross. Catwoman, like, yeah. Scorpion King. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Like yeah. The, the bad early, like, digital double humans. Right. Yeah. It got, like, a little too cheap so that too many people could right. do the bad version yeah. of it right. too much. Yeah. And it, yeah. And this yeah. movie is kind of the pinnacle of that moment, <sighs> for sure. Yeah. 
Anyway, <laughs> Trisha, do you want to go next or do you want to go last? I'll go next. Um, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the character of Mutt and how on paper he is actually a pretty well-designed character and could have had a lot of great things to do in this movie. And as it stands, again, I think on paper, he does a few really interesting things. Um, and I think that the fundamental approach to the character where, you know, he's this greaser, he like keeps dropping out of school. He doesn't value academics. Um, he's, you know, got a switchblade and he's doing like a Marlon Brando thing on paper. I feel like that's a really cool idea for someone who is potentially Indiana Jones's son, right? It, it comes loaded with conflict and that is what you want from the character. But in the middle part of the movie, in the second act, when they're on this South America adventure, Mutt just kind of vanishes into the background of everything and doesn't do the conflict that I feel like his character promises when he shows up. You know, I feel like you want that conflict to be ongoing and like to be not just occasional banter, but real deep character conflict where they're like, I'm thinking about in last crusade where Indy and his dad are fighting about which direction they're going to go with the crossroads. And, you know, Henry Jones senior is providing active obstacles. Like we talked a lot about how delightful that dynamic is because it's real meaningful conflict that creates the twists and turns of the action sequences when Henry is, or Henry Jones senior is, or is not doing what Indy wants him to be doing or, you know, cooperating, not cooperating, trying to cooperate, but messing it up. It doesn't matter if there's conflict there. It becomes, you know, again, it is creating the plot beats of any given sequence. And then ultimately, you know, creating an arc for the character. And I feel like that was the promise with which Mutt arrived in this movie. And then it just never delivered on any of it. Like it just became like a throwaway kind of joke, but just, you know, I feel like when they reintroduced Marion, they kind of gave her that. Like, you're going to yell at Indy now. You're going to create the problems. And then Mutt just really disappeared as a character. I feel like if you were going to make it about Mutt, make it about Mutt. Mm-hmm. Um, and But if you were going to make it about Marion, do that. Or somehow find a way to more closely relate Marion and Mutt as a unit. Like they are completely one unit and Indy's relationship to them is one thing, which goes back to my, why not just make it about Marion to begin with? Mm -hmm. But shows up as an extension of Marion and he's a lot like Marion and he doesn't want to take any of Indy's shit and doesn't like buy anything that Indy's saying. But, you know, he essentially shows up and he's like, you're going to find my mom. I'm your goddamn partner. (laughs) That's what I want. You know, (laughs) I just. I just don't understand why you would create such a great character and then kind of leave him by the wayside for huge chunks of this movie and give him nothing to do but swing in the trees with monkeys. So, <laughs> right. Or sword fight um, across cars. Or if like they're going to kiss, he like like jumps in the middle and it's like, wait, I can't see you guys well, kiss. Yeah. Like it, that yeah, kind of a joke rele- thing. Yeah, you relegate him to like a comedic relief or like cut to Mutt's reaction. That's not what he's here for. Let him be a real three-dimensional character that has stuff to do. Right. Yeah. Well, it also makes me wonder, like, what the plan 
long-term plan for his character was if there was one because you get the sense if you are casting a younger actor in this franchise then they are potentially going to take the franchise forward you know um and uh, and of course you get that moment at the end where <laughs> where indy's like not now kid you know maybe next time which ironically is the moment that terrence howard gets in iron man poor terrence howard did not get uh-huh. the next time mm-hmm. um, but uh, <laughs> Really quick, that moment, I don't know if this was true for you, but like the only thing I remember about my theater experience for that moment is seeing like Shia LaBeouf reaches for the hat and hearing the audience go, oh, like yeah. a oh. and then when the like that, like the hat gets snatched away, they're like, oh, okay. Like yeah. just a <laughs> right. collective sigh of like relief. Right. Not, not nobody wanted it. Right. But that might yeah. not have been the case. Had they done more work on the character? Well, right. or if they had cast someone who we would actually want to see as the lead in in an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Is I think, look, at the character of Mutt in this standalone movie, this Shia LaBeouf does a fine job because he's, he's sort of this, like, annoying greaser kid, right? But, like... <laughs> Are were you not trying to, in the best case scenario, give us a new character who is young and who could continue? You know, Michael B. Jordan and Rocky, even Jeremy Renner and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. It seemed like they were trying to be like maybe he could like be mm-hmm. a new you know Ethan Hunt kind of thing. Anthony Mackie as Captain America, Daphne Keene and Logan. Like we have these people who are sort of set up to be the like we are going to now carry the franchise forward or. Or like at least audiences are excited about us carrying the franchise forward, hopefully. Um, But like, I just feel like was there ever any conversation about like, is this not even just this actor? Is this character going to carry forward the Indiana Jones franchise? Like, no. Uh, So so again, to your point, Tricia, like not only do more work in the character, but give us a character who were like, shit, I want to see Indiana Jones five with this guy now. Like let's, uh, I'm happy to, to have this guy be the new person, but like that was clearly not what this character was even designed to be in the first place. Yeah. Like what if there was the moment in the finale where Mutt saved both of his parents or mm, something, right? right? Like something. Give, yeah. Like give him, again, there should be conflict all throughout and some kind of thematic arc where like Indy doesn't trust him and then Indy learns to trust him as it goes along and then by the end he has a big chance to prove himself and he saves Indy's life because Indy didn't see the angles and didn't see the thing coming and um, Mutt stepped in and saved him and we're like, yeah, Mutt was there and he used his special skill, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Fencing? Probably not. But, you know, But again, it was my same problem with the Willie Scott character. It's like, just do the basic character work. Give them a reason. Give them a reason to be on this adventure. Give them a thematic reason that pays off at the end. And we'll we'll follow them from that point on. It's got to be on the page. Word. Cool. Alex, what's your lesson? Yeah, my lesson came out of just rewatching it and realizing that I was into the idea of not trying to just replicate, you know, the time period and the ethos mm-hmm. of the original trilogy. Like it, I think it is a bold and smart move. If you're, if you're doing kind of a reboot or, you know, 20 years later sequel to embrace the fact that it's 20 years later and that you can't really go back to the exact moment of the original trilogy. So I liked the idea of we're in the fifties. Let's embrace the fifties and what, does, what does the 50s mean? What's going on culturally? The Cold War, the Soviets, the UFO stuff. I, 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 There's an instinct there that feels really right to me. And I think 
I I think it could have been divisive, and I think it could have pissed off a lot of fans who just wanted an exact retread of their favorite indie movie. But I think there was, I I think the instinct is right to you're going to try to keep this franchise alive. How are you going to take it in a new direction for a new time that can still maybe you know circle back around to the same core characters, their maybe ongoing lifelong struggles or character arc themes, but place them in a new context and a new time and a new sociopolitical era. And how do they, how do they react to that era? How do they mm-hmm. deal with the changing times as they're getting older and their reality is changing? So there's a really smart instinct there. And so maybe George Lucas was onto something with, with his interdimensional beings and the time period. But yeah, this execution just I think it, it takes advantage of all that stuff in the most kind of surface level way. You know, it's mm. like there are Soviets and there are aliens and, you know, there, you know, there are you know, the kids, a greaser kid. And there's a fight in a in a bar that's like, a you know, we're in Greece. Uh, so it, it, <laughs> it feels like it, it does. It takes advantage of the time in a fun way, but it doesn't it doesn't do do it all the way. It doesn't have that thematic cohesion where this isn't a movie about our central protagonist dealing really with the mm-hmm. moment he's living through or having to make a choice that deals with a thematic question of his time. It ultimately is like we got to the end and Kate Blanchett got her brains blown up because she wanted to know more knowledge. Like that's <laughs> like, does he make any choices at the end? I, I don't think he chooses anything. Like they just kind of, kind of does They just yeah. run away while Kate Blanchett has her eyes on fire. So, you know, it's, he sees that it's a UFO and he's like, we're not going to go that way. <laughs> it's kind of a Raiders ending. If you like think yeah. about it and stretch a little bit, but, but there's not a moment without bef- there's the not a moment before the ending where he's like, you know, choosing between saving Marion and the destroying the arc. Like that's, there is a thing that happens there that doesn't happen in this movie. And right. I think there's an opportunity here to explore a different era of American history have Indy have to make a choice in relation to it. And it just yep. drops the ball so completely in that last half. It's just, you know, so right instinct. And I wish maybe the next movie will try to do the same kind of thing. If it is taking place in the sixties, that's very interesting, you know, moment in American history. I'd be very For curious sure. to see them actually take advantage of that in concluding the Harrison Ford, you know, leg of the Indiana Jones journey, which I assume they will find a way to make go on as long as possible with the money. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and to, you know, my Raiders comparison there, as we talked about in the Raiders episode, as you said, Trisha, there's enough thematic conversation up to that point that we feel like we've had that explored. So that ending is fine. And yeah, to your point, Alex, it, it does feel like the fifties thing is set up as like, this is like going to be a big part of the story, but it's ultimately just kind of the backdrop uh, right and, and, and like, it, it's that it surface level stuff bit, where yeah yeah, yeah it's like yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about like we're gonna soviet mind control all of you with uh so you know it's playing with like red scare ideas and people being secret communists with mind control or whatever so it's like right. it's got it's like it's having fun with it but it it's only skin deep it's like a lot yeah. of references but not a thematic question that's being struggled with or being yeah. answered yeah Something in that that is a deep question that I keep pondering a lot is like, do all characters have a place in new worlds or new 
eras mm. or new thematic conversations mm-hmm. in a way that is entertaining question mark hashtag what is star wars conversation stay tuned <laughs> <laughs> the most teased episode of this show what? ever yeah. we're just never gonna do it we we're never just will yeah <laughs> um brian what's your lesson take us home yeah, I, sort of too many lessons that, that tie together. The first we already talked about, which is, you know, you have to sell your crazy or or at least limit it, you know. So it's like if you are going to have someone explode in a the fridge, then you have to find a way to either have something happen off screen or really sell that like, yeah, he made it. But good God, he's in the hospital or he only goes 100 feet, which you can't do when there's a nuclear explosion or whatever. Um you know, the, the waterfall, like you fall three times, right. there's no seat belts, there's broken glass at the windshield in the front, but physics, they just all go out at the side and then you do it three times. Like, and again, you, you get, you get away with that as simple as like one waterfall, it crashes. We don't see what happens. Then they wash up on shore. Someone's arm is like, fucking done for the rest of the movie someone yeah. is unconscious or like they can't find them and it takes them five but you know what i mean like you you're like hey we did this big crazy stunt but like there were consequences to it um yeah. and, and you know even like i don't know how you do like a vine swing or whatever but like you know i don't know you swing on two vines and you barely make it and you yeah fall, and you know what i mean yeah right yeah. you don't like have like the monkeys help you or whatever's happening. like i don't know yeah, what's the going anti-communist on. monkeys right <laughs> the monkeys clearly have some kind of vendetta against right. these humans <laughs> um and, and then this is also like this is not just a like this can this doesn't have to be pertaining to just like action sequences and stuff this is just any anything you're writing in a script is can can have that problem right like characters conveniently being in the right place at the right time or like knowing some random fact like oh my god i'm so glad that i paid attention that day in school 20 years ago because that's the exact button we need to press or like whatever like that kind of stuff which just always feels like so tired and stuff there's there's a moment like she Kate Blanchett introduces herself Colonel Dr. Irina Spalko. And then he, Indy later says her full name, her full title and name back to her. And then when he's in the room with janitor from scrubs, like, and they're like, describe her. And he's like, she had black hair. Like he didn't want, you know, her name, like you've heard it twice. You said it out loud, like just stuff like that, that just completely takes you out of it. And and that comes to the second part of my lesson, which is the cost of these moments. It's not just, Mm. Hey, it's bad. The cost is one, this is how people are going to remember and judge your thing. Like they are going to forget about the good hour because of the bad five minutes. And that is unfortunate. But if your bad five minutes is fucking bad, then like that's what they're going to remember. And then two, it can also take just completely take people out of the experience where mm-hmm. they don't remember the next 20 minutes because their their brain shut down, you know, like the whole finale <laughs> yeah. of this movie, like my brain just stops working. I'm like, I don't even right. know what I'm looking at anymore. Um, I think it was during Moulin Rouge, uh, Michael, where you mentioned like the bucking Bronco a- analogy where you're like <laughs> the opening 20 minutes of Moulin Rouge is like a bucking Bronco um, tr- and right. like daring you to, to stay on. Mm-hmm. And that analogy stuck in my head, not just because of the bucking Bronco part, but it's also because of what happens when you do get thrown off of a bucking Bronco. You right. don't just jump back there's on. There's no getting back on. Right. Nope. Like you have to be like, there's a lot of work to get back on. And I think that is the problem. So like, 
take risks in your scripts, do weird things, think about weird things, try stuff, whatever. Like I'm not saying just make the most boring script ever that's like super safe, but you just have to realize that like that is the cost that you can lose an audience to the point where they are gone for the rest of your movie. If you are writing a script, they're going to stop reading your script. First of all, like the movie's never even going to happen in the first place. But if you are actually making the movie and they make it to the credits, they may have for- forgotten a bunch, a big chunk of it because they stopped paying attention after their brain shut down. Yeah. 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 Like earning the things is good and having things have consequences is yeah. good because that's why that thing should be in your movie. And earlier I was defending, uh, you know, Indy survives things and that's not that, you know, bullet shots and that's not that different from atomic bombs. But multiple times during this movie, I was like, why do you even have enemies shooting at the heroes if they're Anymore, not gonna, if, yeah. if nothing's going to happen if there's not going to be yeah. a consequence that changes like it's not fun and like you're saying Brennan it doesn't affect the story in any way so like why are you wasting my time why am i wasting your you guys spent money on this you didn't there's no dramatic that. tension it's just mm-hmm. yeah it's just kind of activity flying by that has no consequence yeah yeah yeah, lots of lessons <laughs> to be good, learned. That's my summary of this movie. Activity <laughs> flying by that has no consequence. But some of it is fun and, dare I say, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's a little yeah. part in there. Um, awesome. Well, this has been our series on Indiana Jones. We didn't get to talk about how Indiana Jones is a terrible archaeologist. Like. Mm. He tramples through these finds like, crypt, like all the time. He finds the lost people from the excavation of like a thousand years ago, and it's just like I'm gonna cut into this thing and here hold this, and it's like. <laughs> anyway, that just really bothered me this time. Like kind of throughout, he's a terrible archaeologist. Yeah, I feel uh, like there's only one time where he uses like a tiny archaeologist brush and it's like in Raiders where he's like, I'm going to brush the dust aside carefully. <laughs> right, right. And that's the only moment where I'm like, that's archaeology. It involves a little brush. <laughs> so, Most right. of the time it, it involves a machete. Yeah. Or being whatever. careful not to stir, like study. Anyway, that's not, he's not that kind of archaeologist. He's Indiana Jones, destroyer of spiders homes. Um, <laughs> Thank the you. Atomic ants. <laughs> Saucer men. Yeah. Uh, yes. the gods. Thank you to all the patrons for making the show possible, making this episode possible, helping us pass 750 patrons. Uh, we love you. You're great. Thank you so much. This has been Indeed. super fun. Uh, we look forward to the next one. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Indiana Jones and the son of Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs>